You're listening to Mountainside Podcast. Yeah, I'll get you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible amongst you, there'll be one somewhere around you in a chair back. Uh, we're not going to get there for a bit, but we will get there so you can keep it open. We are in a series where we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed is actually the oldest of the historical creeds that have been around for, for generations and generations um, because it is an extraordinary witness to the biblical t- truth that is taught by the Apostles. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles, but instead it's kind of like this potent, distilled, Cole's Notes version of the, the core elements of the gospel truth that they taught. And so it's communicated in concise, memorable ways. It lays out those core elements of the Christian faith. It spells out just exactly what it is that you believe when you say, I believe. Um, Pastor Matt Chandler, he said that when the Apostles' Creed was, was recited historically and when it is recited today, two things are happening simultaneously. One is an act of rebellion where we reject the popular narratives, the popular stories of our day that try to define for us how life works, be it consumerism or individualism in our culture. We all know that history is awash of cultures, and each culture has their own stories, their own isms that they use to try to define and depict what ultimate reality is. And those cultures and those stories, they come and they go like passing clouds. But the creed stands like this unchanging mountain towering over all the flimsy narratives of our day. And so when we recite the creed, it's almost like our our slogan of, of, of protest against the other stories that would say this is what life is about and this is what is important. And we say, no, this is what ultimate reality is. Secondly, when we recite the creed, it's an act of submission into the core truths of the gospel. We say it together, that this is what we believe, that these truths are are bigger than any one of us, that these truths are not subject to our approval. Instead, these truths also tower over us, and they call us to submit to them. And as we do so, they help unite and define us as we together pledge our devotion to the three in one, to God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to remind you one more thing before we jump into the creed. Um, It was an important point that Matt articulated well last week. The creed says, I believe, not I know. And it's really important. It is like crucially important that you understand the difference between I believe and I know. Because all the promises of Jesus, they hang in the balance of you understanding the difference. Knowing is mentally um, asserting to some information. It's like, yeah, 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 I mentally, I I kind of, yeah, I, I understand that content. Biblical belief is more than that. Biblical belief is when you know something with your head and your heart and you choose to act on it. You choose to structure and model your life based on this information that you have embraced with your head and with your heart. And so when Jesus breaks into the scene and he's showing us who God is and and what the kingdom of God looks like, he doesn't come with, you know, a one-page fact sheet with a syllabus that he hands out to people say, this is some stuff you should know about me. He says, follow me. 
Orient your life in my direction. Move your feet in the way that I am moving. So right belief, which is what we call orthodoxy, is always, always accompanied by right action, orthopraxy. You cannot have one without the other. If you just have orthodoxy without the right practice, you actually know some stuff. You may be able to spout some verses. You may know some doctrine, but you do not biblically believe. Really important that you see the difference. So in this series, we're not just trying to teach you some of the orthodox tenets of the Christian faith. We're looking at the implications those statements have on our lives. And how our belief in the statements made in the Apostles' Creed should actually structure and shape our life today, orthopraxy. So I'm going to get you to stand right now, and we're going to recite the creed together. Um, One disclaimer before we do. If you're not a Jesus follower, um, I am so glad that you were here. I hope that you keep coming back. But but here's the deal. Um, You don't need to say this. You can stay quiet. You can milli-vanilli it if you want and just kind of lip-sync it along with us. But here's, here's what I don't want you to force your mouth to say something that your heart doesn't believe. There, there's no integrity in that. And so feel free to take a pass. But for those of us who name Jesus as Lord and Savior, let's declare this aloud together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. The creed begins with a declaration that just about any religious person could agree with. Any religious person who has any concept of the bigness of God understands that that there is a God who is big and almighty. I mean, everything in the universe tells us that, that he is powerful, that he is the genius, the designer, the uncaused cause behind everything that is. Scientists tell us that the universe is 93 billion light years in diameter. And a light year is 6 trillion miles. I have no idea what that means. I know it's a long way to Winnipeg, and it feels like six trillion miles when I drive there, but it's way bigger than that. I know the universe is enormous. Inside the universe, there are 200 billion galaxies, not stars, galaxies. The universe is enormous. Did I just... I'm back. And we believe... That Andromeda exploded into being because God made it. In fact, the book of Job, Job calls creation, everything that we can see in the heavens, just like the fringes of God's garment. 
They're like nothing to him. It doesn't take him a half a dozen, you know, light years to get from one side of the galaxy or the universe to the other. He is everywhere all at once because he is equal presence as he is power, which should kind of blow your mind and understand when we say almighty, we mean almighty. Should also help you realize just how microscopically teeny tiny our world and our little problems are in comparison. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. No arguments there from Muslims, no arguments there from Jews. But where Christianity deviates entirely from every other world religion, the mind-blowing claim that Christianity makes is found in this next line. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, only Christianity has God putting on skin and moving in down the block. And he doesn't show up like Zeus with a fistful of lightning and thunder on his lips. He comes incarnated as one of us, born one of us, contained in our frail flesh, breathing our air, eating our food, walking our dirt, crying our tears, bleeding our blood. It's astounding. It's an astounding claim that God comes to us. Almighty God comes to us in Jesus. And this is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. And this is why the creed puts way more attention on Jesus and any other member of the Trinity, because if you don't get Jesus right, you don't understand any of it. He is the linchpin to understanding it all. And so Jesus in the creed is presented and understood by four titles. He's Jesus, the Christ, the only Son, our Lord. I'm going to try to unpack those four for you. In Matthew 16, Jesus is out with his friends, and, and Jesus asks them a question. He says, like, hey, what's the word on the street? What are, what are people saying about me? What are people, like, who do they think I am? And his disciples say, well, actually, Jesus, they're not sure what to make of you. They're scratching their heads. They're tripping over themselves trying to describe and figure you out. Some of them think you're John the Baptist who was reincarnated. Some of them think that you're one of the prophets that they knew from Sunday school, like Elijah or Jeremiah, who's somehow back on the scene. They don't know what to make of you. And Jesus says, well, who do you, who do you say I am? And Peter says, Jesus, you're, you're Christ. You're the son of the living God. You see, the creed declares what scripture teaches, that he is Jesus. Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, which means God saves. That's his name, God saves. And it's his proper name. And by the creed reminding us that we believe in Jesus, it declares that he isn't a mere idea or a fairy tale, but that he's a man. He was Mary's son from Nazareth, a Jewish ex-carpenter who spent three years as a rural rabbi and who was put to death in AD 30 by the Roman authorities, who is attested to in the four Gospels. 
And we have those gospels, not because somebody came up with a, you know, with a spiritual imagination, came up with some fictional character to write about. We have those gospels because a man named Jesus of Nazareth literally lived and literally talked and literally impacted people's lives to such a degree that he just changed their world and they had to tell people about him. Jesus existed. He lived. He is the historical reality. We believe that. He's Jesus. But he's more than just Jesus. Mary's boy is also the only son of God. And this is where your, your, your brain is going to kind of fizzle out and kind of go on tilt like the old pinball machines when they used to go tilt. When, this is what's going to happen right here. Because Mary's boy is also the second person of the Trinity. The word who was the father's active agent in creating everything. We read this in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things, and he made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. When we say Son, the, the scripture and the Apostles' Creed isn't somehow suggesting that that he somehow came after the father, or that there was a period where he didn't exist and the father was by himself and then he had a son. It doesn't suggest that, that, um, that he just materialized when Mary had her baby. The son has always been. He is co-eternal with the father. When the scripture describes Jesus as the only son, it's suggesting two things. First, it suggests this unique position of intimacy between him and the father, that there is this eternal love bond between the two of them. And it also suggests the utter uniqueness of Jesus. And so when John says, in John 3.16, it's actually Jesus talking, but when John writes it in John 3.16, Jesus says this, that God so loved the world, the Father so loved the world, that he sent his one and only Son. Jesus is suggesting the one-of-the-kind, unique nature of the Son, that he is distinct from the Father, hence he is sent from the Father, but he's also one with the Father. And so Jesus will say this, like, head-scratching stuff to people. He'd say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. When you have seen me, you've actually seen the Father. There is this somehow uniqueness, this unity between the Father and the Son, but also this complete distinctiveness between the two. But as the Son, He is able to give unique expression of God to us. Colossians 1, Paul will say it like this Christ is the image of the invisible God. That God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Christ. Maybe you think of it this way as the Son, Jesus is God's selfie. Jesus is, is God showing us what he is like, what he looks like, in a way that we can understand, we can wrap our finite minds around the infinite. 
And so he's the son, co-eternal with the father, incarnated in the flesh of a baby, born of a Jewish girl in Roman-occupied Palestine. He has God come among us. And that is remarkable. That's like nothing else claims anything like this. But he's more than that. He's also our Lord. When scripture uses the term Lord, it's this connotation, it's this declaration of authority. And he's saying that Jesus has all of it. He has all authority. Which is why all those guesses that people, you know, the contemporaries of Jesus are trying to make about who he was. Uh, We don't know what to make of this guy. Maybe he's Elijah 2.0. Maybe he's John back from the dead. All of those guesses fall woefully short because Jesus operates on an entire different level than a mere prophet. Let me give one story to illustrate it. Remember that that time when Jesus and and his disciples are in the boat and Jesus is tired and so he has a nap on the back of the boat and the storm, the wind starts to pick up and it starts to get stronger and the waves start to white cap and then pretty soon they're getting bigger and they're breaking over the boat and the boat's starting to fill up with water and the disciples are bailing the water out of the boat but it's they can't bail fast enough and they're worried the boat is going to sink and so they wake up Jesus and they're in a panic and Jesus stands up and he says storm be quiet and the storm doesn't protest it doesn't like blow a little bit for a little while it doesn't put up a fight it simply obeys instantly Because Jesus is Lord. He says what is what. He has authority over all of the universe. So when Jesus speaks and he says, eyes open, leprosy be gone, Lazarus come forth, they do. He doesn't break into a sweat. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to to fight. He doesn't have to, there's no protesting. There's no arguing. The leprosy doesn't put up a fight. No. It simply obeys because he is Lord. That's why he doesn't get into shouting matches with demons. He's like, this is the way it is. Do it. And they like shake and tremble in fear. Why? Because this mere man, Jesus, is Lord. And they know it. Furthermore, when we declare that he is Lord... We acknowledge that he has authority over us. That he says what's what. That Jesus defines for us what is right and what is wrong. What is up, what is down. Not those wispy clouds of our culture. Now I say this because right now in 21st century Canada, the air is getting thick with clouds. And some of you are having a hard time seeing, and there's a very real temptation to wander the direction the clouds are going. But here's the deal. Our culture does not get to lecture Jesus on what is right and wrong. And the winds of time are going to blow those clouds away, just like they have every other culture. And the one who will stand, the one to whom every knee will bow, is not any culture, this age or that age. It is Jesus. So do not. Do not let your culture dictate to Jesus what is right or wrong. I promise you on that day when you bow your knee, you will regret it if you do. For as Lord, there is no power that can order Jesus around. 
There's no power that can stop Jesus. There's no power that can thwart Jesus. You can't contain Jesus or trip him up. They tried, right? They tried to stop him with wood and nails, with spears and spikes, with rocks and tombs. And we know how that ended. Nothing can thwart Jesus, our Lord. And the best part about this whole creed, the most beautiful part of this whole creed is that the Son who is Lord, does not use his power to dominate or to terrorize, to obliterate or to enslave. He uses his power to seek and to save, to rescue and redeem. For the Son, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, is also our Christ. He's our Christ. I had an, an uncle that every time something went wrong, he would yell, Jesus H. Christ, which confused me because I didn't understand what Jesus had to do with the alternator dying, but somehow he was responsible in some way. And I was confused because I didn't know Jesus had a middle name, H. Howard. I don't know what his H stand for. I, d I didn't know. But I thought Christ was his last name, right? Jesus was his given name and Christ was his last name. No, that's not what it is. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, the Savior, the one who has been long awaited and prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Just three chapters in, God gives the promise of the Messiah, that Eve's offspring would enter into the fray on our behalf, that, that his Messiah would wade into the muck, into the mire of our brokenness and our sin. He would be the perfect expression of God's love for us and the perfect solution to our sin problem. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. So let's bring those four titles together in a way that, man, should astound you should cause your heart to just leap with joy at how shocking and mind-blowingly beautiful the gospel is. The Son, who is co-eternal with the Father, who has always been and will always be, is the Lord with all power and all authority over the entire universe. He is sent by the Father into our reality and is born Jesus an actual man who was God in the flesh. You see, God who is infinitely bigger than you and I, infinitely holier and smarter and greater than you and I, became Jesus so that he could be known by you and I. Jesus enters into our world to, to bridge this infinite gulf between God and us. The, the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth would say, that Jesus is God to man and man to God. He's able to perfectly represent both divinity and humanity both ways. And he bridges that gap by being our Christ. He enters the fray not to condemn the world, but to save it at the cost of his own life. So the Son, who is Lord, becomes Jesus, our Christ. The Son, the Son who is Lord becomes Jesus, our Savior. Thank 
this is, this is staggering. This is a staggering claim. And if we could just marinate our minds and our souls in this, because this is one of the most mind-blowing declarations ever uttered. The Son, who is the Lord, became Jesus, our Christ. C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, the writer of Narnia and the, just one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. He was a, a professor at Oxford University, um, became a Jesus follower later in life. And he used to describe the workings of the Trinity as this elaborate, beautiful dance of love where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each distinct in their movements, and yet as they move, they move with such perfect symmetry and perfect harmony. And you see it here. God the Father sending God the Son. God the Son being conceived into the flesh of Mary by the power of God the Spirit, all working together to accomplish this divine invasion of love. Where? into the mess of our sin and our regret. God doesn't turn away his face in disgust. He doesn't lean away from us to not get contaminated. He leans into us. And all members of the Trinity take the initiative. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all take the initiative to save you and bring you home. And this is a mystery of all mysteries, that divinity and power merge by the power of the Spirit, and Jesus enters the fray. Son of God, who is Lord as Jesus, our Christ. Let the beauty of Paul's words in Philippians wash over you again. Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus the Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So if we believe that, and if you have put your hope in that, that the Son who is Lord is also Jesus, your Christ, then how do we respond? What does that orthodoxy truth flesh itself out in the orthopraxy of our lives. Well, there's a whole year's worth of sermons in there, but I'm going to give you one simple answer. Actually, I'll let Jesus' best friend, John, give you one simple answer. This is how you respond. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If we claim to be a Christian, we must live like Christ. 
Our lives are to more and more demonstrate what is important to him. Our character is to be more and more transformed into his. We are to more and more make choices that make no other sense in the midst of the clouds of our culture other than we're following Jesus. We're following his upside down kingdom where the first is last, where the greatest is least where the humble are exalted, where, where life is found when it's, at, when it's actually given away for him and his sakes. We are to incarnate God's love the way that Jesus did. In fact, Paul says it like this. Remember that Philippians passage we just read? Of course you do. It was a minute ago. Um, before Paul gets into this incredible declaration of Jesus, he says these words. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, made himself nothing, took on the very form of a servant, and was obedient even to death on a cross. The way that we incarnate the truth of our belief about who Jesus is is that we become like Christ in his service. Uh, in the last night... That Jesus was alive. They're in the upper room. They're about to have dinner. And John tells us that Jesus got a, a wash basin and a towel. And he got down on his knees. And he washed the grime and toe jam and foot stink off of all the disciples. And then when he was finished, he resumed his place at the dinner table. And he says this to his disciples. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's. I have set the example for you to follow. Now, let, let me try to explain this. Mercifully, foot washing was a cultural act. I say mercifully because I know some churches have a foot washing service. And actually, we, unbeknownst to me, did one here when I was sitting up there and Jesse Arson washed my feet. And it just about killed me. I'm like, I was like freaking out inside. I was like, he's touching my feet. He's touching my feet. And... So Jesus isn't saying you have to actually literally wash feet, but what he's saying in that culture at that time, this was the way of service that was reserved for the lowest servant. A slave would do this. And Jesus is saying that if I am your Lord and master, if that's who I am, you guys look at me and you know that I'm smarter than any one of you and I preach better than any one of you and I got more power than any one of you and I get down and I wash your feet, then if you bear my name, no act is beneath your dignity to serve others for their good. We become like Jesus in his service. Secondly, and lastly, for today at least, we become like Jesus in his mission. Uh, on the last night that he was alive, after he washed their feet, they had the supper, they're heading out towards the Mount of Olives, where he's going to pray. The disciples are going to fall asleep. He's going to be arrested, drawn before Pilate, right in between that arrest. And before they get to uh, the um, Mount of Olives, Jesus prays. And it's the longest prayer that we have recorded of, of him. And, and at this time, like, everything's going to start moving really quick. And Jesus is laser-focused. He knows what's about to happen. And so he's praying with unbelievable clarity and unbelievable focus on what is most important. And he prays this. Father, 
As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. You incarnated me in flesh. You incarnated love and your purposes and your mission in me and sent me into the world on this divine invasion of love and I'm doing the same thing to my people. Again, in his commissioning, after the resurrection, when he's about to say goodbye, guess what he says to them? As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Just as Christ had to enter our world, so too are we to enter other people's worlds so that the divine invasion of love advances through you. You are called, like Christ, to lean into the muck and the mire of people's hurts and people's brokenness. You are called, like Christ, to incarnate God's love. You are called to put yourself inside the doubt of doubters, inside the question of questioners, inside the loneliness of those who have lost their way. You and I are called to put ourselves inside the sorrow of those who are grieving, inside of the need of those who are without. That is what it means to believe. Because God incarnated his love to us, we are called to incarnate it to others. And so Jesus would say to us, Go into the pain and the confusion, into the suffering and into the sin. I am sending you on my mission of divine love. So build houses and break bread with the poorest of the poor in El Salvador. So pray passionately for and sit quietly with a family that is grieving an unspeakable loss. Keep bringing encouragement to the discouraged Keep giving kindness to the neighbor who's cynical and bitter and scarred by life. Be my hands and feet. Pursue your people of peace. Turn your eye to the vulnerable among you. Show my love. Share my gospel. Incarnate my mission. That is how we respond. Because God the Son, who is Lord, became Jesus our Christ, and we bear his name. Therefore, we must live increasingly as Jesus lived, serving, loving, leaning into the fray, unafraid to get our hands dirty of the muck and mire of other people's life. That is what faith is because that is what faith does. Okay, I got this voice going on inside my head. When I wrote that, I was like, that sounds good in a sermon. That sounds like something that I could imagine a paid preacher to say. But I got limited capacity, and I got limited resources, and I got limited relational space, and I got limited emotional energy, and so this call to live like Christ seems to be a bit of a fairy tale. Like, it sounds good, but like, come on, really? Um, let me end with this. There was this old preacher. His name was William Temple. And his congregation had the exact same objection to that verse in John. If you are in Christ, you are to live like Christ is that I have and maybe you have if you're honest. And, and so he, he answered their cynicism and their doubt and their disbelief in what John calls us to with this illustration. And so these are his words. He said this. It's no good giving me a play like Macbeth or Hamlet and telling me to write a play like that. 
Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's also no good showing me a life like the life that Jesus lived and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like him. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live like me, then I could live a life like his. Remember that verse in John where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. This is what comes next. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The spirit that incarnated the life of the divine in the womb of Mary incarnates you and brings the power and the love of God into your heart. And the more we submit to him, the more we learn to give him the lead and follow his promptings, the more and more our life becomes defined by that which defined Jesus' life. You can, because we don't all only just believe in the Father, we don't only just believe in the Son, we believe also in the Holy Spirit, but that's another sermon in a few weeks' time. Let me pray for us. Lord, the, the claims of your gospel are staggering. I, 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 see, I, I see why Paul says that to the, to the uninformed, to the spiritually who don't have their eyes open, the, the gospel, the claims of God are foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved of the power of God, that God the Father, who is almighty, would send his son, co-eternal with the father, to be contained in the frailty of our flesh, to, to, to show us who God is, to, to be the, the mediator between divinity and humanity by being the Christ, by being the sacrifice that reconciles humanity back to God. It's staggering. And it's so beautiful. My, my spiritual imagination can't help but, but just in, envision a scene just before the incarnation, just before Mary is conceived, that, that in some heavenly airport, the, the Father is there and the Son is there and the Spirit is there and the Father puts his hands on the Son's shoulders and both their eyes are red and misty-eyed because they know this this eternal love bond is going to be broken in the most horrific way. And the father says to the son, you're going to have to remember who you are. That you're my beloved son. There's going to be some dark moments, but you're going to have to remember who you are. And the spirit puts his arm around Jesus and he says, you're going to have to follow my lead. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to let me fill you. You're going to have to let me guide you. And the son nods. And the father says, are you ready? Are you sure? And the son says, yes, there's no other way. 
There's no other way that we could save them and bring them home. And there's this heaviness because everyone in the Trinity knows what it's going to cost knows that at some point the father is going to have to crush the son with the weight of the sin and he's going to suffer and die. And the spirit who is the eternal counselor and comforter is not going to be able to go to Jesus and comfort him. And they know it. But in this beautiful dance, the father sends the son and the son comes and the spirit incarnates him. So he's birthed into our humanity to be our Christ. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee could bow, not out of fear, not out of separation, but of deep wonder and gratitude that we are now brought home and adopted as sons and daughters of God. How beautiful is the gospel. It just wrecks me. It just wrecks me. God, I I confess that I know way more about you and the Trinity than I live out. I confess that my orthopraxy does not match my orthodoxy, and I'd ask that you would forgive me. I'd ask that you'd forgive us. I'd ask that we'd have a vision of your son so compelling and an urgency that matched his and a desire to be filled by your spirit that love would pour out of us, that we could bring light into dark places. We could bring hope to the hopeless. We could bring healing to the hurting. We could advance your kingdom so that more and more people will bow their knee to you out of reverence and love as their Lord, their Jesus, their Christ. God, make it so. Use us in your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's message at Mountainside Community Church. If you would like to get connected to one of our campuses or just learn more about who we are as a church, then we encourage you to visit our website, mountainsidechurch.ca. God bless.